Welcome to Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're here today. Uh, welcome to the guys at Smyrna. We're so glad you're with us today. Anybody connecting with us online, welcome. We're glad you found us there and that we can have that online for you. We've been in a series called Uncommon Sense, and we've been learning the wisdom that God shares in his word about finances and money and material things and how to be good stewards of what God blesses us with. And today we're going to continue that series. So far, we've examined the necessity of work and how it's a blessing and not a curse, right? Something we need to be grateful for. Uh, we've also looked at the importance of restraint in our spending, uh, that we don't overspend and put ourselves in a position where we can't be the generous people that God wants us to be. And we looked at the trap of debt and how in our culture it's so easy to get into debt and it's so hard to get back out again. Uh, but with God's help and with a plan, if you stick with a plan and work a plan, you can get back to a place where debt, you're no longer a slave to your debt. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to have freedom in this area of our lives. Today, we explore the impact of discipline because none of this works without discipline. The problem is we've taken the word discipline in our culture and we've made it a negative thing, haven't we? We say we're going to discipline our children. And what do we mean by that? Punishment almost always is connected to punishment. And punishment is just a small part of discipline. Suffering negative consequences is part of what disciplines us to stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things. But discipline is so much more than just punishment. The word root word for discipline is where we get the word disciple. And a disciple of Jesus is one who learns from the teacher so that we can apply it to our lives and make the changes that need to be made so that we can grow up to be more and more like our teacher. So in the area of finances, God disciplines us through his teachings to train us so that if we take his teachings and apply them to our lives, we grow up to be more like Jesus, who is the greatest example of all of how to be a loving and generous and caring individual. And he wants us to grow up to be like him. And so the discipline of the teachings of Jesus are a good thing for our lives, not just in finances, but in all areas of our life. There are there, they are there for our good, to make life better for us, just like a good parent will discipline a child for their good. You do it in the right way, and you do it for their good. It shouldn't be looked at just as a punishment, but as a training and an equipping for life to be better for us as a result of the discipline. We look at professional athletes all the time on television. We look at professional musicians, entertainers, and we think, wow, look at that. They're just so good, and I enjoy them so much, and, and, and they make so much money, and isn't it great? But you don't see all the hours of discipline behind it. You see, they had to work hard. They had to train. They had to equip themselves to be able to do what they do. And some of it, friends, is very unpleasant. Some of the training they go through is hard, and, and many people quit before they ever get to a level of being good at something because it's so hard to get there. And that's true with our finances a lot of times too. We want our finances to be good, but we quit because it's hard to get back to that place where we can have this as a, as a source of joy and blessing in our lives and so that we can bless others. So today, as we explore the impact of discipline, I want to look at five uh, key teachings from God from God's Word, that I believe will help us get more joy 
more fulfillment, help us to grow up to be more like Jesus and have the fun in our lives that God wants us to be able to have. But we got to have some discipline to do that. The first discipline we need to accept and, and, and practice is to acknowledge the source of all of our blessings. Acknowledge the source. We talk about my money, my house, my car, don't we? We use that terminology all the time. And I know what we mean by that. It's what we have in our possession right now and what we're using right now. So in one sense, it is ours. But in the truest sense of our existence, nothing we have really belongs to us. It's been entrusted to us for a short period of time. And the owner of everything is God. He's the one who provides every good thing that exists on the earth. The Scripture is clear on this. He owns it all, the gold uh, and the cattle and, and all the, the, the crops and everything that is produced. He owns it all, and, and the Scripture clearly teaches that. I want to go to an example now, one that you don't think of often when people teach or preachers preach on finances, but it's found in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 41. If you want to open up your Bibles or pull it up on your smartphone or tablet, Genesis 41, I'll give you a little bit of the context here. Joseph was unfairly sold into slavery, and he was taken to Egypt, and he became a servant to Pharaoh. And the way he ended up being a servant to Pharaoh was first he went through prison, right? He was serving another uh, person in Pharaoh's uh, kingdom, and uh, he ended up being falsely accused. He got thrown into prison, but while in prison, he interpreted some dreams for a couple of Pharaoh's servants. They told Pharaoh about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. So Pharaoh, when he had this dream that he had, he couldn't understand what it was. None of his servants could interpret it for him. So they told him about Joseph, and Joseph was then called from prison to come to Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Let's look at Genesis 41, beginning with verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Okay, so the, the, the people in prison, the baker, the cupbearer to the king, had told Pharaoh that Joseph was able to do this for them. And so when nobody else could interpret this dream for him, they said, well, there's this guy. Oh, yeah, we forgot about him for a while, but now we remember there's this guy back in prison who was able to do this. And so Pharaoh's desperate because this dream was troubling him. He couldn't figure out what it meant. He had asked all of his advisors to give him some help with it. None of them could do anything with it. They didn't know. And so he says to Joseph, I've heard said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So what Joseph could have done then is taken full credit for the ability to interpret dreams. I mean, it came through Joseph, right? The interpretations before, who did they come through? Joseph. And, and the people that told Pharaoh about it, who were they giving credit to? Joseph. So Joseph was in a perfect position to say, this is my ability. This is my power to produce these good results. This is all me. But look at Joseph's response in verse 16. I cannot do it. He didn't stop there, but that's where he started. You could put the emphasis on the word I. He said, I cannot do what you're telling me here, what you're asking me to do. But he went on to say, Listen to this. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So he starts right out pointing to who? To God. Giving credit to who? 
to God. You see, when it comes to our finances, something we have to start with is this. Ultimately, you don't really have control of this. I know you want to think you do. You want to think I can just do this or make this change or work harder and I can get it all fixed. But friends, the source and the author of how this needs to work is God. We need to come under him and his teaching and his wisdom and his instruction and look to him as the source of the one who can help us get this in order in our lives because he is the provider of all things. It needs to start there. In the Old Testament, we have teaching after teaching after teaching on how God laid the foundation for his people to recognize him as the source and to honor him as the source of all their financial blessings, all their material blessings. And Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10 says this. Great wisdom in Proverbs, by the way. I recommend that you just, you know, start reading through Proverbs. You'll have so much wisdom, uh, you'll scare people how smart you are. But you don't, you don't take credit for it. You've got to point them to God. This came from God, right? All right, here's what he said. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits is the term that's used there, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. So the teaching was, honor the Lord with the first fruits. The word first fruits means when the crops start coming in, you start gathering it first before all the crop is in. You just start with what matures first, right? You start collecting that first. He said, with that first part you collect, what do you do with it? You honor God with it. You give it to God. That's what the first, first fruits were. Now, why was that risky? Because there was no guarantee that the rest of the crop was going to come in the way you wanted it to. That's also what makes it an act of faith and a way to honor God, that you trust him with the first fruits. I know what many of us do with our finances, and I understand the thinking behind it. As we get paid and we look at all the bills and we try to get all of them paid as best we can, and if there's any left over and I might have some I could give to the church, then maybe I'll give him a little of the leftovers. But how do we honor the Lord with the what? First fruits with what we've decided in advance and committed to him in advance. That's how God is honored in our finances. When you get leftovers, do you feel like that was an honorable thing, that they're showing honor to you if they just give you the leftovers? No, that's not an act of honoring you. Maybe showing pity and maybe saying, well, I'll give you some scraps just to you know, get you by. That's not honoring the way giving the first fruits honors. So the teaching from the Old Testament was you give God the first fruits. And the way they were taught to do it, God gave them specific guidelines and instructions. He instructed them to bring the tithe to him. Now, the tithe, the word tithe means 10%. Okay? And a tithe, we hear the word tithe a lot today, and people use it kind of without any real meaning to it. Just whatever you give up front, that's your tithe. It could be 2% or 5% or whatever, and you call that your tithe. But the word tithe means 10%. And God was teaching his people to honor him with the tithe on the front end of their productivity, whether they were farmers and had crops or they had herds or whatever it was, the first 10% would be set apart and given to God. Now, it was being given to God for two reasons. It honors Him. It's a way of worshiping Him. 
All right, so it starts with that. But it's also a way that God's work was able to be done. When they brought those offerings and those gifts to the temple, then the temple work and ministry of the temple could be done the way God wanted it to be done. So it was supporting the work that God had called them to do as his people. Now, the 10% was an Old Testament law that they were told to follow. In fact, in Malachi, he, he rebukes them because they haven't been bringing the whole 10% to the Lord. And he says, that's why you're not being blessed. It's because you're not honoring me the way you're supposed to honor me. If you want to be blessed, you need to get back to bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse. Under the new covenant, we're not given a legalistic point where it says, all right, under the new covenant, you have to still give 10%. It's not what it says. But it does teach us to honor God and put him first. In light of the uh, principle of the tithe, many financial advisors came up with a formula to help people start out trying to honor God and manage their finances well, and they named it the 10-10-80 principle. Any of you ever heard that? I just want to share that with you. This is not legalistically taught in Scripture that you have to do it this way, but it could be a good guideline for you to start out with and trying to honor God in your finances. Okay, the 10-10-80 principle. Here's the way it works. The first 10% of what you make you commit that to God right up front. Now, some of you say, I can't, no way in the world with what I've got on my plate right now, I can do 10%. I understand. I understand your feeling and I understand what you're struggling with. And we've all been there, all of us. You're not the only one, okay? So let me ask you something. What portion are you committing to God? I mean, consistently committing to God, showing that you put him first. Are you just using that as an excuse to wait and see if you have any left over? You see, the principle of the first fruits is taught in Scripture to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, to put God first above everything else. That is taught in the New Testament. So what are you doing financially that shows you've made a commitment to put God first in the area of your finances? Is it 5%? Is it 7%? Have you committed any particular thing to God on the front end? of your financial planning? You see, that's how you honor God with your finances. You put him first. That's your first fruits. Most of you aren't raising crops or you're raising herds. Some of you might be, but whatever it is, if you get a paycheck, if you get a direct deposit, you don't have to actually get the check. If you get a direct deposit, have you committed on the front end of that before everything else comes out that this is what I'm going to give to God? Because that would be giving him the first fruits of your finances. So the 10, 10, 80 is, all right, I'm going to give 10% up front to God, and then 10% I'm going to save. Remember we, last week we talked about an emergency fund, putting some back in case something happens, right? If you, if you missed any of these, they're on our website. Go back and listen to them. They're on our YouTube channel. You can go back and catch them there. But, but listen, listen to the, the wisdom of this. God does teach us to prepare for the future, right? We talked about that last week, to prepare because stuff will happen in this world. In this world, you'll have trouble. So put some back for that. So every time you get paid, you can say, all right, here's what I've committed to God. Here's what I've committed to put back for those bad things that are going to happen along the way. Because you're not exempt from bad things because you follow Jesus and neither am I. They are going to happen. And so you need to have some put back. If you don't, you end up getting yourself deeper into financial debt and trouble in your life. So the 10, 10, 80 is put God first with that first 10%, save 10%, and then learn to manage well the 80% to live on that. 
If you could learn to live on 80% of your income, there would be some margin there for you. There would be some, some margin that allows you to have peace and joy and the opportunity to be generous even beyond what you've committed to God up front if you keep some margin there in your finances. I love what he said in 2 Corinthians 9. Paul wrote this beginning with verse 6. He said, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you, here's the principle in the New Testament, okay, listen. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So that means what you give to God, you should have decided in advance, okay? It's not leftovers. It's not just, oh, well, it's offering time. What do I have left over I might could throw in there? No, it's what you've decided in your heart that you were going to commit to as a Christ follower. I'm going to give that to the Lord because I've decided I'm going to honor God that way with the first fruits of what God has given me. It's a decision that you make. So he says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart. And then he adds this, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I love looking around the room when I'm talking about giving to the church because I see all different expressions on people's faces. And I'm not going to point anybody out. I'm not going to call anybody out because I know for some people this is huge. This is a struggle. For some people, they just already, they've got this down. They love it. It's a big part of their lives. And they don't get threatened at all when the preacher talks about this because they've settled this in their hearts a long time ago. But for some of you, this is a real area of struggle. And there are a lot of reasons for that. It could be your financial pressure that you're under right now. It could be that you've been, you think, mistreated or abused by a church and you were giving and they misused the money. There's all kinds of reasons people get, get uh, defensive about this. And I understand that. I understand that completely. But here's what you have to understand. Ultimately, you're giving to who? God. You're giving to honor who? God. This is between you and God. This is the way that you honor God with the decision that you make here. And he doesn't want you to do this reluctantly or under compulsion. You know, I could, I could tell sad stories and show sad videos about some third world country where there's starvation and struggling. And I know preachers that use that to manipulate and get people to give more, right? But that's not why you should give. You should do this because you've decided in your heart you're going to honor God this way. You've predetermined that decision in your life, and you didn't have to be manipulated to give that money that you give. We don't talk about giving a lot here at Lakeshore, and there's a reason for that. We don't want to try to manipulate you. That's not what we're trying to do. But we do want to teach you what God's Word says about this because that's where you find the joy. That's where you find the fulfillment in your giving. It's when you do it God's way. And it's not reluctant under compulsion. He says this, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I've talked about this before. The word translated cheerful is the word we get the English word hilarious from. God loves a hilarious giver. The word at its root means this is a fun, exciting part of your life. You look forward to it. You are so thankful to be able to do this, to honor God this way, that it brings joy to you to do this. And I guarantee you there's a bunch of people sitting in the room and hearing me online right now who haven't been able to do this with much joy, maybe ever, certainly not in a long time. It's time we get back to giving according to the teaching of God's Word, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but because we've decided to do this, 
to honor God in our lives. Because this is a part of our lives that needs to honor God too, not just the other stuff that we do. We need to honor him in this part too. And here's what God says he will do in response. Okay, here's what he says. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. He will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way. He's not talking about the health and wealth gospel here. He's talking about you'll be enriched in every way so that you, here's what you can do. Okay, listen to what he's saying. So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in what? Thanksgiving to God. This Thanksgiving holiday, you know what produces the most thanksgiving to God? is when his people learn to give like this so that the church can be fully funded to do the ministry God's called the church to do to bless people in this world. You understand that? You understand the connection there? This should not be out of coercion. This should not be something where we've had to twist arms and tell sad stories and bring tears to your eyes to get you to do it. This is something you should have already decided. I want to honor God, and I want to support the work of the kingdom, and it gives me great joy to be able to do this in my life. So with that in mind, I'm going to have a prayer, and then we're going to take up our offering today. And I just pray. I pray that you would reexamine your heart on this, and whatever you decide in your heart to give, that's what I want you to give. But, friends, I want you to do it with the attitude of joy and gratitude for the thanksgiving that's going to be produced because you gave and honored God in your life this way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your care. We thank you that today we acknowledge every good thing comes from you. And Father, we do want you to be honored in our lives, in every part of our lives, including this area. So help us to give the way you teach us to give, recognizing you as the source and honoring you as you deserve to be honored. And help us to get back to the place where this is an act of worship and joy and love and gratitude for all of us as your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
We do want to honestly thank all of you who give and support the work of the church. Many people, uh, I know we talked about jokingly getting T-shirts that said, I gave online. Uh, because I know sometimes you notice when a plate's passed, somebody's never putting anything in there. Don't think you have any right to judge that. You have no idea. We have so many people now giving online, uh, and that means they planned it, and they prepared it. They've committed to it. Some of them set it up as a regular repeating gift online. That's the kind of predetermined commitment that we're talking about here. Sometimes doing that online helps you follow through with making that a predetermined decision in your life to give to God and honor him that way. So we thank you no matter which way you give, uh, whether it's online or here during the services, uh, we thank you for your gifts there. So that's the first principle, acknowledge the source. The second principle is appreciate what you already have. Man, do we need to learn to appreciate what we already have. Uh, When we uh, look at this account in Genesis chapter 41, we find that in verse 46 it tells us this. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. All right, so here's what you need to know. Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's dream. The dream said we're going to have seven years of abundance and plenty. And then at the end of that seven years, we're going to have seven years of what? Famine, drought, crops are going to fail. It's not going to be enough food. All right, so he understood that part of what they needed to do was learn to appreciate what they were already going to have in the right way and manage it well because you really are grateful for what you have. He went on to say this, During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Wow. You see, what we often do when we have stuff is we don't appreciate what we have. And when you don't appreciate what you have, you don't manage it well, and your whole driving force is just to get more instead of managing what you already have well. I see that in the American church. I see that tendency in my own life, and and most of us do this. When we have something already, instead of being grateful for it, we're thinking about the next thing, thinking about the next thing, and comparing with others what we don't have instead of looking at and being grateful for what we do have. And this principle is simple and it's scriptural, and that is to learn to appreciate what we already have. I want you to understand this. If we are on welfare in America today, we're in the top 2% of income compared to any third world country in the world today. If we're on welfare in America today, we need to learn to appreciate what we already have. That doesn't mean we manage it well. doesn't mean we do good stuff with it like we need to. We just need to understand how blessed we really are in this country. Now, being blessed doesn't mean you can go buy anything you want anytime you want. Sometimes preachers give that impression. Oh, and we even use that terminology. 
I'm so blessed because I've, I've got this stuff and this stuff and I bought this and bought that. And I'm just so blessed. And true, those are blessings, but friends, blessings go well beyond just the ability to buy stuff. You got a good marriage? What a blessing. You got healthy children? What a blessing. You actually have a job? What a blessing. Right? May not be the one you want, but having a job is a blessing. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You got shelter. You got food. Blessings. All blessings that some people in the world do not have right now. We need to learn to be grateful for what we already have. Here's what he said in Ecclesiastes, another book of great wisdom, Ecclesiastes 5, beginning with verse 10. It says this, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? <laughs> you see, it's all about the motivation. If you love money, will you ever have enough money? No. You won't. If you love wealth, you'll never be satisfied with the income level that you're at. We've all complained about athletes who had a contract with a team, a professional team, making a certain amount of money, who then decide, because some other athletes that play their position or whatever, get start getting paid a lot more than them, and so now they're not content with what they agreed to in their contract, so they will be a holdout to renegotiate to get more money, right? No matter, even though they're already making millions of dollars. Somebody else started making more than them for the same job, and now they're not content anymore with that contract that they signed and agreed to to play for that team for. You say, that's crazy. They're so greedy. But we do the same thing on our level, too. No matter what level we're at, what are we still saying we need? More. We just need more. Life would be so much better if we just had more all my problems would be taken care of if I just had more. I could fix all that's wrong in my life if I just had more money, more income. See, it's because the heart is in the wrong place. We're not grateful for what we already have the way we need to be. If we get more, that's a blessing. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, the Scripture says. So we've got to get that right. The third principle is this, anticipate tough times. We talked about this a little bit already. Remember Genesis 41, verse 53, the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. So Joseph said when he interpreted the dream, we're going to have seven years of abundance, but then, bam, it's going to be cut off. We're going to have seven years where we are going to go through all kinds of famine and struggle and problems there. But you know what God had taught Joseph? You need to prepare for that. It's coming. Prepare in advance because it's going to come. Famine's going to come to your life too, and it's going to come to my life. It already has more than once. Maybe it has for you too. Since we know that for sure, what's the wise thing to do? Prepare, right? Get ready for that in advance. It is going to happen along the way. So it says there was a famine in all the other lands around them too, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. 
When all Egypt began to fill the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. Joseph had already pointed to whom? Who was going to take care of this? Who was going to do this for them? God. But he had to follow God's plan before this could happen. You understand that? We expect God to do it for us even when we're not following his plan. You see the difference there? Joseph followed the plan to prepare for the time of famine, and that's why they had plenty in the time of famine. We don't follow God's plan, and then bad things happen, and we're mad at God because he's not taking care of us. That's the way we do it. Listen to it. He said, go to Joseph. Do what he tells you. Verse 56, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. You see, Joseph not only blessed the people in Egypt. You remember the rest of the story? His brothers came, the ones who had sold them into slavery, because they, in their land they had a famine too, and they were starving, and their family was going to die. And what was Joseph able to do? Help his own family too. And not only was he able to help the Egyptians with their food and help his own family with the necessities that they need, they sold the food. And who also got blessed? Pharaoh in Egypt also got blessed because Joseph followed God's plan too. You see, the nation was blessed because one of the leaders of the nation followed God's plan for how this needed to work. This is not a, a Christian nation. This is not a godly nation in the, in the truest sense of the word. And yet God still blessed them through his people who were following his plan. And that's what we could do for America, friends. We could bring blessings on America, the more of us who will be willing to follow God's plan in our lives. You see, it blesses everybody when God's people follow God's plan, not just in finances, but in every part of our lives. The blessings are collateral. They, they affect the people around us too. They are blessed by God's people. And when people are being blessed by God's people, who does that point them to? God. It points them to God. You see, we can be more of a blessing when we're following God's plan. Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 8, it says this. <laughs> I love this wisdom in Proverbs. Go to the ant, you sluggard. <laughs> Doesn't pull any punches, does it? Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. In other words, nobody should have to make you do this. It's just good, godly, common sense to prepare for bad days that are going to come. Everybody just needs to know this is what we should always do because those things are going to happen. So we need to anticipate tough times. The fourth principle is this, accumulate gradually. Accumulate gradually. I love to learn from Joseph and how he did this because God was giving Joseph this wisdom. And here's what it says in verse 34 of Genesis 41. This is the instruction that Joseph gave to Pharaoh that he said came from God, all right? Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. So here's the plan. The first year of abundance, were they supposed to put it all back? No. But what? A fifth of it back. The next year, what were they supposed to do in the abundance? Put a fifth of it back. The next year, put a fifth of it back, right? You see, gradually... 
with the blessings God was providing, they were able to gradually over time put back what they were going to need for the future hard time that was going to come. He said they should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. So many times our finances are ruined because we didn't follow God's plan. We blame everybody else. Whoever the president is, whoever's in Congress, whatever programs they pass, we blame everybody else when things aren't good for us. But the first place to start is, have we got our heart right with God in this area? Are we following his plan for our finances? Because here's what I know about following God's plan. Even when things don't go well with everybody else in the country, if we're following God's plan, we'll be prepared for those bad times. We can get through it okay if we follow God's plan along the way. Even if the economy takes a downturn, if we prepared the way God said to prepare, what will happen? We'll be ready for it. It doesn't mean we're going to have just an overabundance, but it means we'll have what we need if we've done it God's way to start with. Now, you need to understand something about economies. Any economy in any country, anywhere in the world at any time, they cycle always. No matter who's president or not president, sure, their decisions have some effect on it, but economies always cycle. So there'll be years where it's strong and it's good, and then what's going to happen? Sometime it's going to take a downturn. Sometimes a worse downturn than others, but it's always going to slow down or take a downturn. It happens in every single economy everywhere in the world. Shouldn't we learn that by now and prepare for that since we know for sure that's the way it's going to work? Here's what he says in Proverbs 13, 11. Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. So he's saying little by little, put some back, be disciplined, right, enough to prepare for the times where it's not going to be there now for a while. Prepare for that because things can happen. Illnesses, injuries, layoffs, things happen. Prepare in advance for those things. In Matthew 25, verse 27, you remember the parable of the talents, the guy, the rich guy that went on a journey. He left talents with his servants to manage. The one he gave five, one he gave two, the one he gave one talent. You remember the one with five gained five more, the one with two gained two more. The one that had the one talent just dug a hole in the ground and put it there. And when the guy came back, he said, here's the one talent I had for you. Here's what he said to that guy in Matthew 25, verse 27. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. At least I could have gained some interest on it if you'd at least put it in an account to do that. In other words, accumulate it over time. Interest accumulates over time. There's a thing called compound interest that really plays to your advantage if you start early and stay consistent. Compound interest can end up making a huge difference in what you put back for those times you're going to need it. Now, the only exception to this is if you win the lottery, then you've accumulated quickly, right? If, if somehow you inherit millions of dollars you didn't know you were going to get, I'm not saying don't take it, don't accept it. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what God's Word is saying. God's Word is saying honor God with the first fruits of that and manage the rest of it well, okay? But for most of us, if we're going to prepare for the future, it's going to be gradually over time without a windfall like that coming into our lives. 
Okay? The final principle is this, and it's the most important one, and that is accept the lordship of Jesus in your life. Accept the lordship of Jesus. In Acts 2, verse 36, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, he's finishing up the sermon here, and Peter says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Here's the mistake so many people are making in our culture today in the church and in their decision to say they are believers. You don't get to just accept Jesus as one or the other. You have to accept both. You see, God made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, Christ, Savior. So many churches just emphasize, accept him as your Savior. Get saved today. Accept him as your Savior. But if you accept him as your Savior, you have to also accept him as your Lord. That word Lord means ruler. It means you let him be in charge of your life and how you live your life. And it's no surprise to me, immediately after he says this, he gives them a command to obey to show that they have come under the lordship of Jesus. Listen to this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That word baptized means to be dunked under the water. Why in the world would he connect accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior with doing something like getting dunked in the water. You know why? Because if he is the ruler, you will do what he says. See, this will show right away whether or not you accept the lordship of Jesus. Are you willing to obey the clear command to repent and be baptized? Because if you're not willing to do that, he's not Lord yet. You can claim, I got saved, and I let Jesus in my heart all you want, but you can't just take him as Savior. You have to take him as Lord. Are you willing to surrender to the rule of Jesus in your life, in your finances, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work life? You see, that's all supposed to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He says... Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. He wants you. He wants you surrendered to his lordship in your life. It'll show up in your finances. It'll show up everywhere else if you've surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, Father, we thank you that today we are reminded so clearly that lordship means surrender to your teaching and to the practice of your teaching in our lives. We do want Jesus to be our Savior, but Father, we know that what comes with that is a willingness to come under his lordship. Whether it be finances or anything else, Father, help us today. If there's anybody who needs to make a decision to surrender themselves to the rule of Jesus in their lives, I pray that they would take that step today, understanding that surrendering to his rule is what leads to his blessings. He's not wanting to rule us like a dictator who only wants to control us. He's wanting to rule us in a way where he teaches us what's best and we're willing to live that way. And then we get the blessings that come with it. I pray that if anyone needs to take that step today, that today... 
as we offer this invitation, that decision would be made. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.